Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. For this History Today podcast, we are delighted to welcome Annalisa Nicholson, who is the author of Leading Ladies, our cover story for the August edition in which Annalisa looks at the women who competed for the unofficial title of official mistress, a role which presented new opportunities at the court of Charles II. Um, welcome, Annalisa. Now, the idea of an official mistress is a French import. And when Charles II is restored to the throne in May 1660, He's endured a very European exile, not just in terms of the location. He was in The Hague, he was in Rhineland, he was obviously in Paris, but an immersion in European culture where the unofficial mistress, this idea of a maîtresse en titre, uh, had become part of the French court culture. And I could explain why that was position of official royal mistress or maîtresse en titre as it's known in French stretches right back to the early medieval French monarchies um, and this position was essentially created to give a sort of separation you might say to the French monarch's personal and political life so he would have his spouse the French queen with whom he produces his legitimate heirs but then he would also have an official mistress um, who might change over time, or there are examples of a long-standing um, French official mistress, and they're given rooms in the palace, they're given a pension, and they're often given a title themselves so that their illegitimate children with the French monarch would be able to inherit. Charles's European exile, he comes into contact with stories about the official royal mistress and its tradition in European royal court culture. There's possibly also a particular moment that might have given him cause to consider how this official royal mistress um, could influence his reign. And that's with one of his early relationships that I don't talk about in the article with a Welsh uh, gentry woman called Lucy Walter. Um, Lucy Walter is in The Hague in the 1650s when Charles is also there during his exile. And in 1658, they embark on an affair together. The following year, Lucy Walter gives birth to a son, James, who Charles recognises as his natural son. A year later, Charles goes back to Scotland and he eventually then starts planning to fight in the Battle of Worcester in 1651. Um, and by the time he returns to the Hague a year later, he decides to end, officially end his relationship with Lucy Walter. She then is embroiled in numerous scandals after the end of her relationship with Charles. Inappropriate love affairs, there are stories about inappropriate and bawdy behaviour, and the royal courts in exile are desperate to contain her. Eventually, in 1656, they offer her a pension, hoping that this will manage her behaviour. 
and they try and give her passage to London to settle there. But as soon as she gets to London, it's during the interregnum and she's interrogated as a spy and she's deported. Um, two years later, she eventually dies in Paris. But the whole affair probably gave Charles a chance to reflect on how he might embark on his personal life as he is the monarch in waiting. By 1658, which is also the year of Lucy Walter's death, he then uh, moves to the Netherlands and eventually meets Barbara Villiers, who's married to Roger Palmer. Uh, and they embark on an affair. And it might have been around that time that he decided that this official royal mistress would allow him to arrange this relationship with Barbara Villiers to plan in advance the pension she would have, the room she would have, what she would be able to do at court, um, but also with the promise that they would never marry, um, that their children would be provided for, but they would never be the heirs. And was there any um, precedent within English history for this kind of behaviour? Or was this a genuinely new imported innovation? It's complicated to say the least. It's not that the idea of an official royal mistress had never existed before, because the idea of an official royal mistress simply means the most prominent mistress and a mistress who is given um, financial, material and social status by the king. Some of the most famous examples we might consider as Anne Boleyn from the Tudorain, for example, she was clearly Henry VIII's most prominent mistress during a certain period. However, the way it's different is that Anne Boleyn eventually becomes Henry VIII's wife. Um, and by contrast, some of his other mistresses never gain the sort of social and financial backing that we see during the reign of Charles II. Um, so Charles, for Charles II, he didn't have a blueprint either. His father, Charles I, was quite famously devoted to Henrietta Maria. There's very little evidence that Charles I had any extramarital affairs. About 10 years ago, there was a, a letter deciphered that gave the impression he might have had an affair, but that's it, which is quite unusual. So in that sense, this is quite different because it's about weaving an official position into the fabric of the court that is creating a demarcation between the king's spouse and the king's mistress and saying, this is the mistress's rooms, this is her annuity, these are the privileges that she has, and this will be the future of the heirs. So there's a structure now around this, mm. this title. Um, there's a kind of architecture about it. Let's look at these um, people. I mean, Barbara Palmer, Barbara Villiers, as she was, um, has been in exile. Um, and there must have been tension there between the mistresses, I mean, in this case, Barbara, and Catherine of Braganza. Um, how did this manifest itself? There definitely was tension between Barbara Villiers and Queen Catherine of Braganza. By all accounts, Barbara Villiers, when she joined and accompanied Charles on this voyage back to England, where he's going to reclaim the throne for the Stuart monarchy, she was completely aware that she was never going to be made his wife. She herself was married. Um, and eventually Charles does make uh, this match with Queen Catherine of Braganza. It must have struck Barbara Villiers that Charles II and Queen Catherine of Braganza's marriage was politically expedient. 
um, there is very little evidence that they got on particularly well. It was certainly a politically useful marriage. Catherine of Braganza brought an incredible dowry and possibly Barbara Villiers did not feel threatened by this. You can see the tension arising at several moments. I think if anyone was the victim in this, it would have been Queen Catherine of Braganza. Barbara Villiers accompanied Charles II and Queen Catherine of Braganza on their honeymoon, where she gave birth to one of her and Charles's children, which must have put the new queen in utter disarray. Um, she had also been made uh, Queen Catherine's, I think, most prominent lady-in-waiting, which apparently saw the queen faint when she heard the news. Um, that said, Barbara Villiers was in an incredible position herself. I don't think she ever felt the need to uh, bring up Charles to, to make it any clearer, his feelings for her. Um, she had her rooms in the palace, her children were being recognized by the king. Queen Catherine never produced an heir, and this put Barbara in an incredibly influential position. And she also had influence uh, in the way in which the court was portrayed as well, about the imagery of the court that was there. Yeah, so Barbara Villiers had an extremely clever idea, which was to offer patronage to a painter called Peter Lilly, whose paintings now characterise the Restoration. When we think about the Restoration and the portraits we see in galleries about the Restoration, they're usually painted by Peter Lilly. Peter Lilly was a Dutch painter who was a court painter during the reign of Charles I, and he actually managed to survive throughout the interregnum. He painted Oliver Cromwell and Richard Cromwell, and Barbara Villiers puts in a word for him with Charles II, and Lily is installed as the official court painter. And this allows Lily and Barbara Villiers to work together in a sort of loose collaborative partnership where they choose to depict her in a series of guises in which she can project the sort of power, authority and iconography that she wants. And we see her in a number of, of images. We see her portrayed as Saint Barbara, as her namesake, as Minerva, as a shepherdess, uh, and of course, very famously, as the Virgin Mary beside her illegitimate child with Charles II in the guise of baby Jesus. So we have a Madonna and child imagery going on here. It's utterly fascinating that Villiers and Lily chose to undertake this um, depiction. Villiers was not only Charles's mistress, so was not only engaging in adultery, but also had other lovers. Um, so this virginal, this virginal guise collides really with the image that she might have had at court. She wasn't particularly serene, religious or tranquil, if anything. She was mischievous and she was cheeky and she had a brash sense of humour. But when you see this portrait, it is the epitome of innocence and serenity. Um, it's Lily's brush, really, uh, painting those features that gives up that sense of biblical innocence. And in that sense, it satirizes not only Villiers's role as mistress, but also her motherhood of uh, the monarch's ch uh, children. And what one of the things we associate with the Restoration um, is the return of theatre um, after the interregnum, after the period of Puritanism. And Charles has a thing for the theatre, and he particularly has a thing for actors, shall we say. And then we come across 
two figures strongly associated um, with Charles. Um, Low-born figures relatively in, in comparison with some men, one like Barbara Palmer, Barbara Villiers. Um, Mole Davis, who's an actor in the Duke's company, and then I think the person who's most associated in the public mind with Charles, and that's Nell Gwynn. Can you tell us something about them, about the role they played, about why Charles would engage with that world? Really fascinating, isn't it? That Charles would take on official mistresses who were actresses, low-born women, who both of whose um, biographies are incredibly obscure about the circumstances surrounding their births and their childhoods. However, both Moll Davis and Nell Gwynn, by the time they engage in relationships with Charles II, have amassed their own celebrity. And it's very possible that Charles was enamoured by this sense of celebrity and fame, these new exciting worlds. He was someone who's always been associated with novelty. And what's particularly interesting here is it wasn't just Charles's reopening of the theatres that's so exciting, but also his legalisation of women acting on the stage. So in that sense, they are participating in a brand new culture. They themselves are on the stage engaging and acting. Um, Moll Davis was very well known at the time. She was very well known for her acting and her dancing. She had been approached by George Villiers, the second Duke of Buckingham, who was a loose relation to Barbara Villiers, to see if she would replace Villiers. Um, and she readily agrees and Charles very quickly falls for Moll Davis and they have a child together. But it's only a year later that he then falls out of love, I suppose, with Moll Davis and embarks on a relationship with Nell Gwynn, who is, I think, much more well known to Anglophone audiences. Gwynn has a very obscure um, background. Even her date of birth is, is under speculation. Her mother seems to have owned a brothel and Nell was probably a barmaid. So there has been um, suggestion that she might have been a child prostitute. Eventually Nell at the age of 12 or 13 is able to leave the brothel through a relationship um, with a fellow actor. And she sets herself up um, and takes to the stage. She's actually initially approached by Buckingham to replace Villiers, but apparently she demanded too high a pension, which I think is really interesting that she knows her worth. She knows the King of England can afford to pay this. Um, and she's very happy to wait. Um, she's very happy to wait. Um, she's not actually approached again to replace Bol Davis. In fact, it happens all by chance. She's gone to the theater to watch a play with her friend. And Charles is also in the theater nearby, possibly in an adjacent box with his brother, the Duke of York. And they sort of exchange glances and eventually go off to dinner together. At the end of the dinner, Charles realizes that he's come out without any money and Nell has to foot the bill. To which she replies, odds fish, tis was the poorest company I ever was in, impersonating Charles's voice and his manner of speaking. And it's from there that their relationship takes off. At this point, we might also think about the sort of the wittiness. There's a sort of continuity between these mistresses, between Villiers, between Davis and eventually Gwyn, that Charles is very interested um, in witty women, in strong women. So that might be another reason he turns to the world of actresses. Well, this, it, it suggests a really extraordinary personality, I mean, particularly considering uh, Nell Gwyn's background. Um, 
this sense of, I'd say entitlement is perhaps not quite the word, but it suggests a pretty formidable personality and presence there. Um, and as you say, a person who knows her worth. Certainly, yeah. Um, Nell Gwynn is an extremely exciting character at the Raised Restoration Court. But it also should be remembered how shocking it must have been for so many courtiers to have Nell Gwynn attending court, you know, bedecked in jewels paid for the king in the most beautiful, the latest fashions. Um, and she wasn't shy about her past. She's often, there, there are documents kind of recounting remarks that she's made where she talks about growing up in a bawdy house, which was the term then for a, for a brothel. Um, so by no means was she kind of obscuring that past from anyone. And, and she's a, a figure who has entered uh, British mythology. Um, how was she, was she perceived as something special uh, from the off? Was, was it there in the 1660s? Was, was Nell Gwynne a public figure? Yes, exactly. Nell Gwynne had amassed a huge amount of celebrity on the restoration stage, um, particularly in a genre called the comedy of manners. Um, so by 1665, she's an established actress. We can see in Samuel Pepys's diary, um, and when he refers to her as pretty witty Nell, that she has had a successful career already. And her performance in James Howard's play, All Mistakes or the Mad Couple, seals that celebrity status. The play was a comedy of manners, which is um, a type of play that satirizes the manners or behavior of a particular group from society, usually the upper classes. And as part of this particular role, she joined forces with an actor called Charles Hart to play in what's known as a, the gay couple. So the gay couple is a male lover and a female lover whose relationship is defined by flirtatious, antagonistic banter. Um, the male part of the couple is a rake, reluctant to marry um, and hoping to have some sort of adulterous affair with the female part of the couple. And the female part of the couple is playing along, pretending she also isn't interested in marriage when in fact she's trying to avert disappointment. And this becomes so popular on the stage. Um, together, they perform in multiple plays together. They keep bringing this out. Nell Gwynne becomes, um, she becomes a, a household name, not only for her delivery, but also for her witty improvisations. So she's actually able to play with the audience's dynamic. And one of the things that's always in the background in Charles's reign, is a clandestine relationship with France. I mean, that's, that's how we began. We've seen this uh, tradition of the royal mistress imported from France, that kind of idea. And Charles has this quite close relationship with a country about which his subjects are deeply suspicious, many of them, including his political class. And there are attempts by the French to negotiate, to cement a more stable relationship with England at this point. And one of his mistresses 
a, a fascinating character, is introduced to him via this route. Could you talk about her? Yes. So as you said, there is a, uh, a mysterious relationship going on between England and France at this point. Charles has long-term relations with France. His mother was French and he spent a decent part of his exile in France at the generosity of the French monarchy. However, upon the restoration, he's also met with huge religious divides and it's that which is upsetting his subjects. It's French Catholicism and this fear that France wants to invade England and impose Catholicism on the country that is so worrying to his political advisors. And so on that level, Louis XIV and his government are really struggling to influence the king. Um, and they are hoping to arrange a sort of treaty with him. And to do so, they send over uh, Henrietta Stuart, uh, known as Minette, so Charles's sister, they send her over to try and negotiate a sort of secret Anglo-French alliance. And she's accompanied by Louise de Kerouai. And almost immediately, it's obvious that Charles II and Louise de Kerouai are very interested in each other. Um, but Kerouai has to go back. After the treaty is concluded, Kerouai goes back with um, Henrietta. And at this moment, tragedy strikes. Henrietta falls ill um, and dies. And Kerouai is sort of found without a position. And Charles sweeps in and offers her one. And Louis XIV is more than happy to give his approval because now he has, um, he has his former sisters-in-law, lady-in-waiting at the court of Charles II. And straight away, she is elevated to the position of official royal mistress. She is, in this way, she, what she's able to do is she's able to speak to Charles privately about maintaining Anglo-French relations, knowing that in these private audiences, political advisors are not going to be there to challenge her. Um, and this is a type of diplomacy that historians have termed boudoir diplomacy. Um, because what she's able to do is she's able to use these kind of intimate moments to make suggestive comments about policy, knowing also that she herself is French, that Charles has got family related to the French monarchy, knowing that she would be able to have a, make a good impression on him. And what is the, what is the outcome of that? And I suppose there's, there's a question to ask about the contrast between her and, say, Nell Gwynne who appears to be this very popular figure publicly. Um, and yet here we have, just as we talked about the clandestine relationship between England and France, or Charles at least in France, there must have been something of the clandestine about this relationship, given the sensitivities. Yes. So essentially, Kerouac is detested by most strata of of um charles's political advisors and every time that there is uh, a sort of pro-french decision or even remark that comes from charles Kerouai is always accused of having influenced him in this way and uh the fact that louise de Kerouai is french and catholic pushes a lot of the public into uproar and there's a moment that has gone into 
um, the stuff of legend that we might say, where Nell Gwynn, in fact, is, is in a carriage traveling through the streets when a crowd starts to block her way and obstruct her. And she pushes herself out of the door and says, pray good people be civil. I am the Protestant whore knowing that it's the Catholicism of Louise de Kerouac that has made her so detested and playing on the fact that she's only the Protestant whore. You know, she is the one that should be elevated once again. Nell Gwynn and Louise de Kerouac seem to have had quite a tense relationship, um, judging from some of Nell's witty remarks that have been recorded. So she called Louise de Kerouac Squintabella, um, kind of making a, a comment about Louise's eyes. Um, however, we could also argue that this is what we'd expect from this sort of rivalry. Um, Nell Gwynn, she is a wit. She has a wit sharper than a serpent's tooth. And I can sort of imagine her making these comments out loud to everyone. It sort of helps her maintain her own position, the fact that she's been overlooked for this new French Catholic mistress. Um, so I think it's always complicated when we look at these, these rivalries to, to see them in the wider context of the court. And we come now to one of the um, to the final one in this series of extraordinary women at the court of um, Charles II, um, and that's a person who you've done a great deal of work on, uh, which is Hortense Mancini, who arrived, it said, on a rainy December day in 1675 um, in London on horseback and in sodden men's attire. So what was the background for that? Like Nell Gwynn, Hortense Mancini had acquired a huge amount of celebrity before she became the mistress of Charles II. Um, Mancini was the heiress of Cardinal Mazarin, and she'd been married to one of the richest men in France. Um, however, the marriage broke down and Mancini fled, fearing the abuse of her husband. And she spends the next few years she sort of is apparently in flight from her husband's armies, but equally she's traveling at a fairly leisurely place, enough to involve herself in the latest parties in Venice, in Rome, zigzagging around Europe. And in doing so, all the time, she dresses up as a man. There's a whole, um, there's a whole theme in her memoirs where she talks about cross-dressing as a way that enabled her to travel independently through these regions. She also comments on the fact that the disguises weren't always convincing. And it's hard to tell whether that comment is her playing down the cross-dressing as something controversial. But she is known as um, a cross-dressing runaway duchess. And cities are so excited by this. The local journals are constantly keeping their readers informed of her movements creating an atmosphere every time she might be about to arrive in their city. Eventually, Mancini is given sanctuary in Savoy by the Duke of Savoy, and she spends that time writing her memoirs, talking about her travels, and they're published, and they're eventually translated. And when the Duke of Savoy dies, and she's then invited to the English court, the memoirs have already been translated into English. So everyone there knows about her. They know about her cross-dressing. They know about her traveling. And I think this moment that's recorded in the state papers of this, of Mancini, who is at first believed to be a courier, a courier arrived in the night, absolutely drenched from the rain, 
um, astride a horse and with an unusually large retinue. She arrives exactly as you'd imagine her to arrive, based on her own self-fashioning in the memoirs. So um, what's the relationship between these people? You've talked about the disparagement of Kerouac um, and the popularity of people like Nell Gwynne. Um, what's the relationship between these mistresses, if they have one indeed? Initially, it can seem like there is some rivalry between the mistresses. I've spoken a little bit about that already. When Mancini arrives, Kerouac apparently puts herself into mourning for several months. However, if we start to look closely at other types of sources, we notice that all of the mistresses attend Mancini's salon. So Mancini sets up a salon at apartments in St. James's Park, adjacent to St. James's Palace. And Kerouai is there almost in the, you know, the first few months of the salon's running. Kerouai is um, depicted as sitting around the Bassett table, playing with other members of the salon. We also hear that Barbara Villiers is at the salon. She comes with her children. Um, in one of the most legendary stories about Mancini, she seems to have had an affair with one of Barbara Villiers' illegitimate children with Charles II. Nell Gwynne comes to the salon also, also to try her hand at Bassett and possibly brings her friend Afra Ben. And Mole Davis would go on to marry one of the main members of Mancini's salon, uh, an oboist called Jacques Paisible. And when we put all of these stories together of these women being cited at the salon, cited at the gambling table, it seems that there must have been some sort of friendship there because they didn't have to go to this salon. They very much could have remained um, in their own dwellings. And so this suggests something very different from rivalry. This suggests possibly a friendship, um, which we might find harder to come to terms with today. But in fact, this position of royal mistress is in fact something quite official it's an official role and it might be that sense of officialness that allows them to overlook what might be seen as, a, as an amorous rivalry well, thank you annalisa it's a absolutely fascinating um topic and if you want to know more about this then you should read annalisa's wonderful article about the comings and goings of the court of charles ii and the role of the official mistress Leading Ladies, it's in the August edition of History Today. And so I'd like to thank you, Annalise, and thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me.